We have been on the Sunday mornings uh, taking our recent studies from the book of Joshua, and then on Wednesday evenings we've begun piecemealing our way through those eight wonderful statements of Jesus at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that we call the Beatitudes. But for the next few weeks and near to the end of both series, I'm going to swap their places so that we began pressing on with Joshua this past Wednesday evening and so that we will turn these Sundays in November to the Beatitudes. And so turn with me now, if you will, to the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where we will begin reading in verse 1. Matthew 5, 1-12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we want uh, to live uh, in your blessing. And you've taught us in this passage what sorts of people, what sorts of traits, what sorts of spiritual values attach to or come attached with your blessing. And so teach us, not only today as we look at verse 6, but all throughout this passage, teach us the values of your kingdom and what the blessed life truly looks like. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger, Jesus says. I thought this past week that one way I could help get this idea across to you of spiritual hunger would be to preach for a really long time this morning until your gastrological clocks begin to tick out loud and until your stomachs began to groan in your pews. Um, but I thought that while such an exercise might make the point, it might also undermine it by means of making you a little exasperated with the one making it. So, alas, I have decided to use my words to describe hunger rather than to induce hunger in you this morning. So that will relieve you. And as I thought about hunger, it occurred to me that there are at least three types. There is, on the one hand, the kind of hunger that your parents may have sometimes called real hunger when you were a little boy or girl, the kind of hunger that doesn't just want a sandwich, but which has endured weeks or months of famine, living on a bowl of rice a day or less, and in which the stomach is beginning to balloon and the bones are beginning to protrude at the elbows 
and death is looming over every village. When I was a little boy, that hunger, and some of you remember this, was painted on the faces of starving little boys and girls in Ethiopia, desperate for just the basic daily nourishment that we are accustomed to and unable to receive it. And so our parents were right to tell us when we were whining about not having seconds that we didn't know what it was like to be really hungry. That's one level of hunger, the most serious level, of course. But then there is another level at which the word can be used, which, although it doesn't come anything close to real hunger in all caps, is nevertheless a form of real hunger in lower print, lowercase print, and that is the hunger that you would feel if I kept preaching on towards one o'clock today, or that your bodies begin to feel at certain times of the day when you're normally scheduled to eat, or especially when you haven't eaten at your normally scheduled time. So now I'm talking about those times when a person who is normally well-nourished begins to get signals from his body that he needs to continue nourishing that body. So the growling stomach, particularly, maybe you get a little bit shaky if you haven't had the starches that you're used to on a given day. Just the normal run of the mill, it's time to eat sort of hunger. And then there can be a third kind of hunger, which is brought about by the smell of roast beef just pulled from the oven and the sight of carrots and potatoes swimming in its juices on the sides of the pan, right? Or maybe for you it's the smell of fresh baked cookies or basil or ripe oranges or what have you. There are certain food-related sights and smells that bring on a kind of hunger that makes itself known in the watering of the mouth and for me at least in the desire to go ahead in between Sunday school and church and dip my spoon into the chili pot at home before I've even gotten to the sermon yet. And maybe I'm losing one or two of you already because I've shifted your attention to your lunch. If you can harness that watering of your mouth this morning, though, if you can learn from those rumblings that come into your stomach from time to time and that will come again in half an hour or so, then you will have begun to understand what Jesus is saying in this passage. Because in the same way that we ought to hunger for food and to enjoy it and to sometimes salivate over certain dishes and to know that we need regular portions of it and to realize that we will quickly die and others will too if it's not provided, in the same way that we understand hunger, so it is... And so it ought to be with the things of God. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. And blessed, says Jesus, are those who thirst for it as well. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And we can say the same sorts of things about thirst as we just said about hunger. There's a life and death kind of thirst, just like there's a life and death kind of hunger. There's a thirst, a dehydration, which if not quenched will result in death. And then there's the everyday sort of thirst, when you've been out mowing the lawn or when you've just finished a jog or when you've been out in the hot July sun working in the flower bed. There is that thirst in which the body of a healthy, well-hydrated person yet reminds her that she needs to continue to be well-hydrated. And then there's the thirst that comes when you smell coffee brewing or when you see the sweet tea pitcher filling up on the kitchen counter after Sunday church. And you're listening for that gurgling sound in the machine that lets you know that the brew is just about done. And I want to suggest to you these three kinds of hunger, these three kinds of thirst, the desperation of starving or dehydrating, 
and then the everyday signals that your body gives you that it needs food and drink, and then even the sensory-induced mouth-watering that we all feel with certain sights and smells, I want to suggest to you that each of these three kinds of hunger and thirst has a correspondence in the life of your soul. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. There is, for instance, a place of soul starvation or spiritual dehydration which, if not assuaged, will eventually result in death. And in fact, we're all born in that condition. We're all born spiritually sick. We all are, by our own sinful nature, malnourished. Our depraved hearts reject the pure milk of the Word, like a child who is allergic to its own mother's milk. Only in our case, the rejection of the milk is not involuntary, but stubborn and hard-hearted. By nature, we don't want to feed on Christ. And until we've truly met Him, we want to do a dozen other things on Sunday morning besides come and think about God for 75 minutes. And some of you can remember exactly what that was like. And so we're already sick, we're already sinful, we're already broken when we come into the world, and our intolerance for spiritual milk only compounds upon itself. And eventually, if there's no intervention of the Holy Spirit while, whereby we are given new spiritual taste buds, eventually if something doesn't happen to make us want to eat and drink, we will wake up in the judgment and it will be too late to do anything to feed the inner man. And in that day, both the inner man and the outer will waste away forever. Isaiah describes hell as the place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We think about the fire of hell often, but what about that phrase, their worm does not die? I think he's saying that hell is the continual sense that I'm wasting away. The continual sense that my flesh and soul are rotting, but will never fully rot completely, and where perhaps like a person with a parasite, I will have a constant sense of needing nourishment, needing strength, and never being able to be filled. Here's the fate of sinners who continually reject the things of God, who do not hunger and thirst for righteousness. But blessed are those who do not reject these things. Blessed are those who do hunger. Blessed are those who do thirst for them. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman. Blessed is the girl or the boy who longs for the pure milk of the word, who hungers for Jesus as the bread of life, who thirsts for that righteousness that can only be found in him. And so I say to you, there is a spiritual hunger, there is a soul thirst which recognizes the desperation of our situation, which understands that if we don't eat and drink for our souls, we will quickly perish. And therefore there is a hunger and thirst that reaches out to God's table and takes the wine and the milk, the bread and the water that are on offer there without money and without cost. And I urge you this morning, if you've never done so before, if you've come here today and you know that something is missing in your soul, you know that your soul is parched, you know that your spirit is empty, I urge you this morning to come to Christ who alone can make you well, who alone can fill you up. And in the words of the hymn writer, I urge you to stoop down and drink and live. Or in the words of God himself through the prophet Isaiah, Ho, everyone who thirsts, 
Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. There is a hunger which, if not satisfied in Christ, will result in death. And so come and take him today as the bread which came down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. But then there's another kind of hunger, the hunger of the spiritually healthy person, which, while not life-threatening, is yet the pang of the heart reminding us that we really do need our daily bread and we really must continue to hydrate Our souls. In other words, while some of us may be living in famine this morning and the signs in our lives reveal it to some of our friends, just as sure as the bloated bellies of those poor children in Ethiopia told us that they were starving, others of us this morning, many of us, have found bread. And we've lived for many years now next to a fountain of living water such that our souls are very much alive and we know God and we've been nourished by God and our great soul thirst has been quenched and yet we mustn't forget that spiritual nourishment like breakfast, lunch, and dinner is meant to be an ongoing thing. No, you're not going to die if you miss a Sunday or if your Bible reading slacks off or if your hunger for godly behavior slightly abates, but you can become malnourished and sickly if you don't keep up a good spiritual diet, can't you? And so we need to heed reminders like this one in Matthew 5 and maybe sometimes heed the pangs of our own souls that are telling us that it's not wise to skip our meals or to eat spiritual junk food, or to work all day in the hot sun of this wilderness world without any soul hydration. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the things of God for the very first time and who come to Christ and find life. But blessed also are those who continue to hunger and thirst, who continue to know their need for Christ, the living bread. And then let me remind you thirdly that there is a hunger in the soul as well as in the kitchen, which is something more than just a recognition of need, but which is, in fact, an expression of delight. Sometimes we ought to long for God and for the things of God, not just because we know we need them, but simply because we have found them, as the psalmist puts it, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Sometimes we ought to find ourselves pursuing the things of God simply because we know we need to, yes, in order to remain spiritually healthy, but also because we really want to, because we've tasted how good it is to hear the word preached or to buy toys for the Christmas shoeboxes or to spend time in prayer or to overcome a grueling temptation. Sometimes in the Christian life we ought to be driven by the hunger of sheer mouth-watering delight at the things of God. Sometimes we ought to be so eager for Sunday morning that we're already dipping into the preaching passage like a husband sticking his greedy fingers into the crock pot before his wife has even served the meal. And sometimes we ought to leave this place longing for seconds, 
longing to find another sermon online on the same topic or to read further into the passage that we looked at or eager to have a church family over for Sunday lunch so that the fellowship and the praise can continue. That is a kind of hunger too. And we're blessed if we sometimes have it, if sometimes our mouth waters for the things of Christ and if sometimes our tongue pants for another draft from the refreshing springs of God's word and people. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst with a life and death desperation which knows that without Christ I perish. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst with the daily pants and rumblings of a person who knows what it is to eat and drink and who knows that she must keep doing so for her health. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst like a child standing on tiptoe with his nose just over the edge of the countertop, drooling over the prospect of getting another of mother's fresh hot oatmeal cookies. But then notice this in verse 6. We are to hunger and thirst in these ways. Yes, for the word of God. Yes, for the fellowship of the people of God. Yes, for the things of God in general. Yes, for the person of God himself. But specifically in this text, Jesus says we are blessed if we hunger and thirst particularly for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now what does that mean? What is righteousness according to the Bible? Well, there are two types of biblical righteousness, aren't there? On the one hand is imputed righteousness, or what we might call declared righteousness, or as Paul describes it, a righteousness that is not my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. And then on the other hand, the Bible also describes a righteousness which, in a manner of speaking, is my own. We might call it acted righteousness, a righteousness that is lived out in my daily behavior. So there are two types of biblical righteousness, imputed or declared righteousness, and then acted or lived out righteousness. And the question is, to which is Jesus referring here? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for which kind of righteousness? I think the answer is perhaps both. Let's think them both through just a little more thoroughly so that we might hunger and thirst for them. On the one hand, we have to say with Paul, there is none righteous, not even one. On our own, he says, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. There's not a single person on the planet, in other words, whose life has been up to the standards of the holiness of God. There's no one in this room who can make any claim upon God and his goodness or expect any kindness or reciprocation from him because we have somehow been, quote, a good person. There aren't any good people. There's none righteous, not even one. All have turned aside, Paul says in Romans 3. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us in big trouble, doesn't it? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death. The wages of our unrighteousness is death. And indeed, the only way that we can possess life is if we can somehow be righteous in God's sight. And so we're in trouble, unless there's a solution from God. What is the solution? If none of us is righteous... But if we must actually be righteous in order to live in God's presence, brethren, what shall we do? 
Well, the only solution is if we find with the apostle in Philippians 3 that righteousness which is not our own, that righteousness which we have not achieved but which is imputed or credited to our account by God in Christ. The only solution is if God declares us to be right in his sight, righteous in his sight, by crediting the merits of Jesus, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, to our account. We are not righteous in our actual behavior, not even close, but God can credit the righteous status of Christ to our account. He can treat us the way Jesus deserves to be treated and swap our account with that of Christ so that while Christ was treated like we deserve on the cross, we can be treated like he deserves at God's bar of justice. God lets Jesus stand in our place and his record stands for our own so that when God looks at us, he sees him. And when he sees him, he sees righteousness. And when God ratifies that transaction, we are credited with what Paul calls in Philippians 3, a righteousness that is not our own. A right standing with God that we did not achieve and could never have achieved by means of our own paltry obedience to God's law. When we believe on Christ, a decree is pronounced over us by God. This one, upon his or her faith in the merits of Christ, has been declared righteous at my bar of justice, his or her own sordid rap sheet notwithstanding. It's not that God actually infuses righteousness into us when we trust Christ so that we can now begin to live righteously and thereby merit at least a portion of our salvation. No, it's simply that when we trust wholly on what Christ has done over against any supposed merit of our own, God declares us right or righteous in his sight. Our own merits, past, present, and future notwithstanding. And this is a kind of righteousness for which we should hunger. Getting back to our text. This is a standing in God's sight for which we should thirst. We should look at ourselves in the mirror and realize that we don't measure up to God's law and recognize that we will never measure up to God's holiness in terms of our own ability to honor and obey him. And we should long that God would declare us to be something that we can never be in our own behavior in this life. Namely, righteous in his sight. We should long to be filled up and to find our satisfaction in the righteousness of Christ alone, credited to our account in spite of all our evil deeds. I should hunger, to put it in different terms, to be saved by grace, rather than trying to satisfy my soul by telling myself that I really am a good person and that God will surely be grateful to have someone like me in his kingdom. To try and satisfy the longing of your soul by telling yourself that you're good enough to go to heaven is like trying to nourish yourself on a diet of cheese puffs. They may taste really good going down, but there's a lot of air in the bag and a lot of air in the puffs, and one day you awaken up to find that you made a very poor decision. And so we must come by God's grace to hunger for that which can really satisfy, for that which can really bring life. We must hunger to be saved by God and not ourselves. To be right in his sight by grace and not by works. To thirst for a righteousness that is not our own, 
rather than the stale water of our personal merits. That is one sort of righteousness for which we must hunger and for which we hunger especially at the beginning of the Christian life. Imputed righteousness. And then that hunger goes on as we realize we continue, even as God changes us, not to be what we ought to be and to need to rely upon Christ's righteousness alone for our justification before God. But then there's also an acted righteousness in the Christian life, a righteousness in our own character and actions for which we should hunger and thirst as well. Now, someone will just say, didn't you say just a minute ago that there is none righteous? Well, Paul said that actually, but yes, there is none righteous in the sense that there is no one aside from Jesus whose godly behavior can merit even an ounce of God's favor. And indeed, until we meet Jesus, until we are converted by his grace, there is no such thing as godly behavior, is there? We might sometimes, as lost people, do the right things, but we do not do them for God for whose glory and honor we are to do all things. And so there is no one who is truly godly without God, without Christ's intervention. And there's no one who's godly enough to merit heaven. Until we meet Christ, none of us have true godliness in us at all. But now I'm sounding like I'm saying that once we meet Christ, once we are converted to him, we can become godly or righteous in our behavior. And that is indeed what I'm saying. When you meet Jesus, your life will change. When Christ comes into our lives, we are not only declared righteous in God's sight, but we are also changed inwardly so that we have the wherewithal to begin to live righteously. But you might ask, didn't you just also say a few minutes ago that the idea is not that God infuses us with righteousness so that we can begin living in such a way as to merit at least part of our salvation? Yes, that's what I said. God's imputation of righteousness, God's declaring us righteous, God's justification of us, to use the biblical term, does not consist in him infusing us with a righteous disposition so that we can live differently and begin to merit heaven. That's what Roman Catholicism teaches, but that's not the Bible. Justification is not the process whereby God infuses us with a new righteous disposition so that we can change our behavior and make ourselves somewhat worthy of salvation. Justification is a credited, declared, imputed righteousness that God gives to us in spite of our behavior, not an infused righteousness to change our behavior. And yet... Just because justification is not about infusing righteousness and just because infused righteousness and the resulting behavior is not what saves us from the wrath of God does not mean that God doesn't impart to us a new, holy, righteous, godly disposition when he comes and saves us in Christ. Of course he does. Jesus makes a difference, does he not? In the way we think, in the way we act, in the way we work, in the way we feel about certain things and certain people and so on. Jesus does put a new disposition in us and it does result in living more righteously over time. Now that doesn't add anything nor is it part of our justification, our right standing before God, our confidence that we are accepted in the beloved, as the King James translates Ephesians 1 so beautifully. Accepted in the beloved, not because of anything we do. Our righteous living is not a part of our security in Christ. And I hope we understand that 
We didn't merit salvation before we came to Christ, and we don't merit it after either. But what I'm saying now is if we've truly met Jesus, we will be different. And indeed, we will want to be different if we've truly met Jesus. We will want to begin to live righteously. And that's what the Master is encouraging here in Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not only imputed righteousness by which we are justified, but the acted, lived out righteousness that we are now capable of having been born again by the Spirit of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this sort of righteousness too. Blessed are those who want to be holy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be more like Jesus, to be more patient when wronged, to be more loving toward our wives, to be more submissive toward our husbands. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be better spiritual leaders for their children or more holy at work or more honest in their business dealings. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be less and less attracted to pornography and less and less controlled by physical appetites and more and more concerned for widows and orphans and more generous with our money and more generous with our time and more faithful with our time. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to display more of the fruit of the Spirit and more of the love of 1 Corinthians 13. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be a better testimony to their extended families, to be a more faithful witness in the workplace or at school, to better control the flaming fire of our tongues, to have more moral courage in the face of peer pressure. And on and on the list could go. Blessed are you if you hunger and thirst, not only to have Christ's righteousness credit to your account, which is essential, but if you hunger and thirst to have his life, his holiness, his righteousness oozing out of every pore of your being in the way you live as well. And I tell you, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, whether imputed or acted, if you hunger and thirst to be justified by Jesus and to become more and more like Jesus, you shall be satisfied, Jesus says. If you long for a righteousness that is not your own, if you grieve for your sin and you know that you cannot save yourself and you know that there's nothing on your record that would cause you to be able to stand at God's judgment and you hunger that Christ would save you and you thirst that God would credit the righteousness of Jesus to your account in spite of your poor record, if you really want that righteousness, well then you will surely also have the faith through which God credits it to your account. If you truly hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is not your own, but that which is through faith in Christ, there is nothing that prevents you this morning from reaching out by faith, even now, and taking hold of that which Jesus promises to everyone who thirsts. All that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus says, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Or in the words of Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And the same is true today if you really hunger to live righteously. Come to Jesus first to be declared righteous based on his merits alone. But then beyond that, if you desire to live righteous, which surely you must if you really belong to Christ, if you desire to live righteous, God will not frustrate that desire. 
If you hunger and thirst for an acted, lived out righteousness, then you will, like a man who hungers for food or like a woman who thirsts for drink, surely go looking for that which will slake your thirst. And what Jesus is saying here is that when you go looking, God will not leave you disappointed. God will not, if you are reading your Bible and praying and meeting with his people and seeking appropriate accountability, all in an effort to be more like Christ, God will not allow those cupboards to turn up bare. But let me ask you before we close, is that why you're here today? Is that one of the reasons you pray and open your Bible and seek to be with God's people? I know it's not the only reason we do these things, but... Is this one of the reasons that you come to these wells week after week? Because you really want to be holy. You really want to be like Christ. You really long to be righteous in your daily living. If so, well then this beatitude is for you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied.